Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 10th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, flooding in North Mississippi forces evacuations. Plus, we visit a pop-up vaccine clinic in Richland. Then, a look at policing in rural Mississippi. And in today's book club, the power and violence of the Ku Klux Klan in 1960s Jones County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Storms forced road closures and evacuations in North Mississippi yesterday. More rain for today. And joining us now is Thomas Winesett from the National Weather Service. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning. So uh, there have already been evacuations this morning. Rain, bands of rain after rain after bands of rain continuing in that part of the state after days of the same. What can we expect in the coming hours, let alone the coming days? So right now we're looking at numerous uh, showers and thunderstorms across northern Mississippi, generally north of I-20. Uh, going up through portions of the Delta and the Highway 82 corridor, generally from Greenwood over to Columbus and that general area. We've seen a lot of rainfall over there over the last couple of days. We've seen even more this morning. Uh, we've had a, almost six inches in Greenwood since midnight, and all that rain has led to a lot of flash flooding. We have numerous roads covered in water. Several roads are washed out, and there have been reports of water entering homes. So it's definitely some dangerous flash flooding across northern Mississippi still ongoing this morning. We've also got word of some uh, water evacuations taking place in a couple of counties. Yes, there are uh, some evacuations going on. I know there are a couple of water rescues that had to be uh, done. Um, and along some of the streams and rivers that have risen out of their banks, there were some evacuations as well. Do you know where that was specifically? I, I know there were some that were reported in uh, Clay County along Tibby Creek. There were some evacuations there. What does... To the rest of the day and tonight and tomorrow look like? So for the rest of the day, we're going to continue to see heavy rain, continue to train over these same areas across northern Mississippi. So we're going to have that continued risk for significant flash flooding, especially in these areas that have already seen a lot of rainfall. Um, the good news, though, is that, that that'll start to let up a little bit through the day, um, especially by this evening. We might start to see a little bit of a break in some of those heavier rainfall rates. 
And then generally as we get uh, into the weekend and into early next week, we'll, we should start to see more of a typical summer pattern with your afternoon pop-up showers and storms versus this widespread heavy rainfall we've seen the last few days. What's considered saturation? You know, we hear about, oh, the rain has already saturated the ground so much so it has no more, it, the water is running off and that causes the flash flooding. How much can the earth absorb before that happens? Right. A lot of it depends on the antecedent conditions. And, and before this rain event, some of the places across northern Mississippi had been fairly dry. So the initial rounds of rain um, didn't initially cause flash flooding, but they already saturated the soil. So the soil got, uh, it went from being dry to pretty wet to now it's oversaturated to where it's completely soggy and just filled with water. So at this point, you know, we're looking at some places that have had six to 10 or more inches of rain over the last few days. So that soil just can't take any more rain. Any, any additional heavy rain that falls on top of that already saturated soil just has nowhere else to go. So it just immediately runs off and causes widespread flooding issues. We would normally expect to see this kind of rain in April or May. Is it unusual in June? And why is it the case now? It's not uh, overly unusual to see heavy rainfall events in the early summer. Um, it, it just depends on the exact uh, setup that we're looking at. In this case, we had a uh, an upper-level system that was really slow to move out of the area. And it's, it's kind of progressed a little more, but um, what we're looking at this morning is a lot of what we refer to as convergent flow just off the surface. So if you go up in the atmosphere, uh, maybe a few thousand feet, we have uh, low-level winds that are converging, so they're blowing into each other. And so when you have that happen, that produces a lot of rising motion. And as you take the really moist air outside and lift it uh, higher up into the atmosphere, it condenses into uh, rain. So we're seeing all this convergent flow and moisture being transported across northern Mississippi that's setting up this uh, kind of persistent flash flooding event that we've been dealing with the last few days. You said that the rain would continue through the weekend, sort of off and on. Since it won't be raining so intensely and so much, does that mean the risk for flooding is reduced because there's less rain to run off? Yeah, as we get into the weekend, the the coverage will be lower. So there'll still be a few showers and storms around, but it won't be quite the coverage we've been seeing. So there could be isolated flash flooding issues if you have a slow moving like afternoon summer storm that drops a quick one or two inches of rain. But thankfully, we're not expecting it to be to the extent that we've been seeing like this morning and yesterday. Thomas Winesett, meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Thanks so much for the info this morning. All right. Thank you. Coming up, we stop by a pop-up vaccine clinic in Richland. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic, host of AutoCorrect. If you're enjoying this podcast, try my podcast, AutoCorrect. We help steer you in the right direction with your car problems. Find me on any podcast platform or at autocorrect.mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Right now, Mississippi's COVID-19 vaccination strategy is based around accessibility. The idea that if a person can easily get to a vaccine site, they're more likely to get vaccinated. Richland is one of several Mississippi towns to host pop-up clinics, which offer walk-in vaccines at central locations. Pat Sullivan is Richland's mayor. He says pop-up sites can appeal to those who might not otherwise get the shot. 
We were first approached by the, the guard and the, uh, the Department of, of Health about reaching out to our citizens to be a, a step-down level from the larger, like the Trustmark areas that they were going to, and you're, they're, they're setting up in tents, they were coming down, and they're wanting to be able to step down from that to a community level, and in order to be transfer it to a to the private sector, back to the the clinics and the uh, the pharmacies, they want to be able to get it back to them. But this is a transition through uh, to it. Um, when they reached out to us, we said this is a great opportunity for the city of Richland to be able to get people that may not necessarily go to a clinic. Our location of our city hall is closer to some needed areas, people that may not necessarily go to the clinics. So if we can reach out and get our population that's probably not going to go, I think that's just something that the city of Richland ought to do. MPB's Kobe Vance visited the Richland City Hall site yesterday. Over the course of a few hours, he only saw a handful of people show up to get vaccinated. One of them was 18-year-old Mac Towie, who says he had good reason to want protection against COVID-19. Back in December, I want to say, roughly around there, my whole house got COVID except for me, so I got pretty lucky then. And I said, very safe than sorry, you know? As we're looking at cities that are doing events like this, where they're offering the vaccines as walk-up clinics now, what pulled you to this, like, coming into here as opposed to, like, other places that have had the vaccine over the past few months? Well, my mom works at the fire department, so it was easier just to go here. And also, I didn't really know where to go. (laughs) So she was like, just go to the city hall. They're doing it. And it's pretty nice. It's nice, easy, and convenient. Not too far for others. Was, was convenience important for you when you're choosing to get this? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to go out like 30 minutes and then have to go back. So it's, it's not too much of a convenience. A Millsaps College and Chisholm Strategies poll released earlier this week finds only 3% of Mississippians who say they won't get vaccinated cite accessibility as an issue. As of yesterday, fewer than 28% of Mississippi residents are fully vaccinated. Coming up, what a Mississippi university is learning about rural policing. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. When we talk about police reform, we often do it in the context of big cities like Minneapolis or New York. But fraught relationships between communities and police extend deep into America's small towns. A new study by the Southern Poverty Law Center is underway to better understand the dynamic of rural policing. And Mississippi Valley State University is chipping in. They're helping to organize focus groups and collect information on law enforcement in the Delta. MVSU professor Catherine Green tells our Ashley Norwood why she's excited to be part of the project. 
I think rural areas are frequently disregarded in terms of coming up with policies. And we're not saying what we're going to find. That's what our data are going to tell us. But I have a feeling just from what I am seeing, what we've collected so far, is that the issues are not very different from rural areas in regards to policing and community involvement and community perception as very much the same in urban areas. I look at it throughout the country as well as in Jackson, what folks are saying and different issues that come up. And I don't see that there's a big difference in uh, how communities want to be policed. This old, uh, not that old, but the idea of defunding the police, I think, has been misunderstood. Nobody that I have ever heard of wants to have no police. But people are just looking at how best to provide safety to the citizens, what needs to be done to provide safety. And so, you know, we're just looking to see what the citizens respond to. I don't think so far nobody's saying that they don't want any police. They're important in communities. You know, that idea of, you know, defunding the police or just the overall conversation about policing it's, it's being talked about nationwide, right? You know, so much has right. happened in the past few years. America has watched a number of black men and women die at the hands of law enforcement. We know Derek Chauvin was found guilty in the murder of George Floyd recently. There is a case in Louisiana with the alleged police cover-up and the death of Ronald Green. And then even in Mississippi, there's this call for the investigation in the custody death of Robert Loggins in, in Grenada. Mm-hmm. So right. how do you think all of this will impact you know law enforcement and communities engagement in this survey and in these conversations in the focus groups about policing in rural Mississippi? Well, in the focus groups that we have had, and we've had a very few, we're trying to spread out, we're basically in the Delta this far. Again, people are not saying they don't want police. They're wanting more interaction with police. Basically, what I have heard many times is that police are seen driving around in their cars, and that's kind of it. After a murder has occurred, you know, a murder between civilians, not talking about police murders, but just a murder in the community, police arrive. Well, that that is not crime prevention. And so what communities are saying is just more interaction with police prior to crime might be helpful in providing safety and providing a confidence that community members could feel that they could talk to police about an issue in the community. You know, it's baby steps, I think, but that's what we're hearing is that more police involvement in community work would probably help both the police and community members. Are community members saying or or talking about um, feeling safe in their communities? They're saying that what we are hearing so far is safety is a major problem. All we have to do is look at the gun deaths that are occurring, and that's across the country, how they're up in 2020, the number of people being shot, the rise in gun purchases, adults not taking care of guns and then allowing children. I mean, the latest, the horror story of the toddler shooting her sibling in a car. There's just, 
guns are an issue. And I think that people in many communities of color know that it's an issue and they feel very unsafe because it is an issue. And then that leads to, well, why are uh, basically young folks engaging in gun violence? Well, what else do they have to engage in? Well, hopefully there's church and community organizations that give them something to occupy their time, keep them from dropping out of high school. Are the schools doing their jobs? I mean, it's really a wide range of issues that we all as citizens need to focus on. Are you concerned so, that law enforcement may be hesitant to participate? I am. I am concerned. I mean, we've seen how they feel in other areas, how they feel that people are not respecting the hard work that they do, that they feel that they're targeted. That's what we don't want to come out of the survey. We don't want that to be the result. We want better communication. And so we need to hear from them in a way. I mean, the whole idea of a citizen review board, that is a major issue in a lot of communities. I I know Hattiesburg has one now. Tupelo seems to have one that doesn't seem to have a lot of teeth to it. Jackson is under uh, Mayor Lumumba is certainly considering it. But, you know, how do we institute community involvement in policing if they don't have a real process that they can go through to look at it? Not to punish police, but to have some civilian oversight so police can hear what citizens are saying. Dr. Katherine Green, professor of history at Mississippi Valley State University. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, murder, Klansmen, and the FBI in today's book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Vernon Damer is considered a hero of the civil rights movement in Mississippi, yet his name isn't mentioned as nearly as much as those of Medgar Evers, Emmett Till, or the Philadelphia Three. Damer was killed at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan as retribution for his activism. In his new book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, historian Curtis Wilkie makes readers privy to the conversations and murderous motivations behind evil hooded men. As Wilkie tells us, the chilling details come directly from a man who joined the Klan as an informant for the FBI. Tom Landrum was a troubled white guy in Mississippi during the 60s. He was uh, troubled by what was going on in Mississippi and more particularly in his uh, home county, Jones County. Um, He was a a youth court counselor. Uh, He was college educated, uh, had a uh, family of five children, uh, a very loyal wife, and he was approached by a friend of his who was the local FBI agent in 1965 in Laurel who asked for his help. That help would consist of joining the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, which was headquartered in Laurel, and uh, reporting regularly to the FBI as an unpaid inside informant. Tom Landrum agreed to do it at great risk to himself and his family, and he's a 
example, of a white person in Mississippi during that period who certainly didn't fit the national stereotype of racist segregationist, but rather a regular guy who was deeply troubled by what was going on in his home state. Tom Landrum must have been very good at assimilating into the Klan because he was not suspected at any point, and yet other members were. Yeah, he was certainly not the only informant. I not only wound up with Tom's journals, but had access to papers at the University of Southern Mississippi Library that contained literally thousands of pages of FBI material from their investigation of the White Knights, particularly after the murder of Vernon Damer. It's very clear that they were getting information not only from Tom Landrum, but from several others. And, you know, there was a, a real state of paranoia that existed within the White Knights. They suspected a number of people. Why was the murder of Vernon Damer significant in that it, it served as another lightning rod as compared to the murder of Medgar Evers, the three civil rights workers? What was it about Vernon Damer? Well, Vernon Damer was not as well known as Medgar Evers, but he was a friend of Medgar Evers, and they had worked together in the movement. Vernon Damer was a very important figure in South Mississippi in voter registration drives. He was head of the NAACP in Forest County and had been for a number of years, so he was a, a real activist. He was never as widely known as he deserved to be, but I was a young reporter in Mississippi during that period, and um, I certainly was aware of Vernon Damer's name, although I never met him. What came in from Tom Landrum to the FBI after the fact, he knew that Damer was targeted, and he reported that, but he did not know anything about the night of the raid, or he would have certainly reported that. And then he became privy to uh, information very helpful in developing evidence against the people who were involved in that murderous raid and you know, helped lead to uh, uh, their arrest and the conviction of, of most of them. What Tom Landrum reported in the months following and the time period following Vernon Damer's death is sort of a rejection of the Klan by its own members. People started to leave for various reasons. Yeah, uh, some were frightened, particularly after the Damer murder. Any of the members could be considered complicit in that, and some of them were very uncomfortable, and they left the Klan. These murderous raids uh, of the action in the Neshoba County, they were, in fact, counterproductive to what segregationists were trying to achieve in Mississippi because uh, a lot of white people who had gone along quietly with segregation and with these uh, terrible public policies in Mississippi were were suddenly horrified by what happened uh, to Vernon Damer and what happened to those three young men in Neshoba County and what happened to Megar Evers. Really, they were a bunch of uh, outliers and you know, they were not particularly smart people. They were people who, were, I think, were resentful of uh, their station in life, and some of them joined for the camaraderie of belonging to a group, and uh, some of them, you know, just you know, bitter racist, willing to do anything to ensure that 
blacks would uh, uh, be denied their rights. Curtis Wilkie is the author of When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer. It has been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. Karen, always nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.